Hello and welcome to another episode of A World to Win. And this week I am having a chat with David Waring about Boris Johnson's recent trip to Saudi Arabia in which he turned up cap in hand at the feet of some of the most murderous and authoritarian regimes in the world. Um, This was literally days after the Saudi Arabians had executed 81 people in the largest mass imposition of the death penalty for many years. So David and I discuss why Johnson thought this diplomatic mission was necessary, how it relates to the crisis that we're seeing in energy markets and the potential emergence of a multipolar world order and what this means for world politics. David is an expert on Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia and the Gulf states. He is author of Anglo-Arabia, Why Gulf Wealth Matters to Britain, and he's a postdoctoral researcher at SOAS. Now, while I have you, I just really want to ask everyone if you can, and I know a lot of people can't but if you can please do consider supporting us on patreon we need that money in the patreon account to invest in bringing you new content to carry on producing the show and we've kind of you know seen our earnings fall somewhat over the last few months for understandable reasons everyone is feeling the pinch but if you are in a position to be able to support us please do so that we can continue to bring you the podcast and also if you want to support the show in another way uh, but you can't support us on patreon then please do consider sharing the show on social media we are at a world to win pod on twitter facebook and instagram and the patreon page is patreon.com slash a world to win pod and there is a link in the description to that so with that small plea i give you david waring and our discussion about boris johnson trip to Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Hello and welcome to A World to Win. This week I have David Waring with me. He is an expert on Britain's relationship with Saudi and the Gulf states, the author of Anglo-Arabia, which is a great book that I would recommend people buy. We will put a link in the description and a postdoctoral researcher at SOAS. Now, for the last few episodes, we've been talking mainly about the cost of living crisis. And the most recent print edition of Tribune was also on the cost of living crisis, on big increases in inflation that are really eating into people's disposable income and uh, living standards. What we haven't really discussed is that this is all about energy. So naturally, there's the kind of standard impact of the increase in oil prices on things like transport and logistics and in an import dependent economy like the UK's. That's a big deal. But it's also worth bearing in mind that fossil fuels go into a lot of other commodities, particularly we're seeing the the impact on food and other agricultural commodities because of the use of fossil fuels in things like um, fertilizer. Um, And then, of course, there's, you know, just the standard impact on fuel costs, heating bills, etc. So we're kind of living through this like 1970s moment where we've got this big increase in the oil price and no one really knows how to handle it. The kind of standard response from central bankers and politicians up to now is just, oh, we've got inflation, raise interest rates, make borrowing more expensive, and that will mean businesses reduce investment and the economy kind of cools down. But the problem we have at the moment isn't an economy that's overheating. It's just an economy in which it's very difficult to get your hands on a lot of stuff at a kind of sustainable price. So the big imperative here is um, developing new sources of energy. And that is obviously in the context of A, the climate crisis and B, these wider kind of geopolitical tensions that are all kicking off at the moment. But in the meantime, people are seeing a really big and probably permanent fall in their living standards. Now, this was the context 
for Boris's trip to Saudi Arabia, which is what we're going to be talking about today with David. So the Prime Minister went to Saudi Arabia and also to the United Arab Emirates. And while he was in Saudi, he met Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And this was just a few days after it was 81 people were executed in the largest mass imposition of the death penalty for many years in Saudi Arabia. And this is all after the Khashoggi murders, the mass slaughter going on in Yemen. David, how is Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, as he's often referred to, recently hailed as a kind of reformer by the international financial press? How is he getting away with all this? The problem that the US government and the British government has with Saudi Arabia and with MBS is not so much the cruelty of the regime, the human rights abuses, even the war crimes in Yemen, because they've been supporting this regime in all its cruelty and with all its human rights abuses for decades. And the war crimes in Yemen, we have to remember, are going on with British and American assistance. They're being committed with jets that are supplied by the British and the Americans and which can't fly, can't operate without ongoing British and American support, notwithstanding the fact that Joe Biden, when he came in, downgraded that support a bit. It's still fundamentally there and, and Yemenis are still being are still being killed. So we think about it in terms of how is he getting away, how, how are the West allowing him to do that? But I think the way we should think about the relationship is that Saudi state violence is an extension of Western imperial violence. Mm. It's contracted out to, to regimes like that. Now, to the extent that there's a tension, the tension is that when the violence becomes, on, on the part of the Saudis, when the violence becomes too blatant, it starts to affect the political sustainability of the relationship. Because like with Khashoggi, for example, what they did there was so egregious. You know, a, a well-known journalist, which is what Khashoggi had become, he'd left Saudi, gone to Washington, you know, ingratiated himself with the whole think tank commentator circuit, regular contributor to the Washington Post. He killed someone like that, as well-connected as that. Mm. You really draw attention to yourself. And what the British and the Americans have been trying to do in the last couple of years or, or since the Khashoggi killing, what Biden's been trying to do since he came into office is is try and you know, deal, deal with the political ramifications, the, the domestic political ramifications of the fact that Saudi abuses have become too sort of big and loud to ignore while maintaining the fundamental relationship, which is to support the regime for geopolitical reasons, for economic reasons, which I, which we'll get into. But yeah, it's definitely worth thinking about the fact that these British power and Saudi power are fundamentally the same side. Their violence is to a large extent our violence. And any problem the British and American governments have with it is about, you know, how do we manage that? How do we keep it? How do we keep that violence quiet? How do we stop it rebounding on us domestically? Yeah, so that's the real tension, I think. Mm. Now, what is Boris's relationship like with Mohammed bin Salman himself? Because there were a few people that were saying, oh, if anyone can go over to Saudi Arabia and kind of get the Saudis to increase oil production, it's going to be Boris Johnson. Yeah. Why was there this assumption that he was going to be able to go over to Saudi Arabia and kind of solve the world's energy crisis? And what, what ended up coming out of this, basically? What did Boris expect he was going to get and what did he end up getting? Yeah. So this is all about, and there's a few different strands here. So number one, this is all about the fact that once this war in, in Ukraine starts and you, and you have these sanctions, and the sanctions, Western sanctions on Russia aren't, aren't hugely in terms of energy. Certainly Europe isn't 
shutting down Russian energy imports. But they are having an effect on energy exports, partly because companies are are worried about doing business with Russia and, and worried about being caught by the sanctions, even when they're not necessarily being targeted by them. And so it's all about trying to get energy from other sources on stream to compensate for Russian energy that's being locked out of the global system. And in getting that energy from other sources on stream, like whether it's more Saudi oil into the market, more UAE oil into the market, more Iranian oil, more Venezuelan oil, that can push the price down. Now, usually... It would just be a case of Joe Biden or you know, the US president phones up the king of Saudi Arabia and says, can you open the spigot and you know fl- flood the market of Saudi oil, bring the price down, that would be a great favour, thanks very much. But MBS refused to take Biden's call. Exactly, he? exactly. Yeah. And, and this is kind of, so what I was saying before about the Saudis and the Americans being very, very close, within that, those parameters, to the extent that they ever fall out, there is, has been a bit of a falling out. And it's kind of silly because... From the point of view of the Saudis, they get a phenomenal amount of support from the Americans. You know, they can abuse dissidents, they can, you know, lock up dissidents and torture them, they can bomb the hell out of Yemen and get all this American support. What Biden did when he came into power was, okay, I've got to recalibrate this relationship because it's getting embarrassing at home. I'm getting a lot of flack from liberals and from the left. So I've got to be seen to be doing something about it. So he recalibrated the support, slightly downgraded the support that they were, the US was giving to the Saudis over Yemen. He refused to talk to the crown prince and said, I'm only going to talk with the king. But the fundamental support for the Saudis continued. But that wasn't good enough for Mohammed bin Salman. He doesn't want to feel any effects, any blowback from the US president. He doesn't appreciate, I don't think, the political costs that his actions are imposing on his patrons in Washington. And so when Biden phones, apparently when Biden wanted to call him and and make this request, he refused to listen to it and refused to take the call. And apparently um, it was the same with the UAE. Um, The UAE government refused to take Biden's call as well. So this is where they turned to Boris Johnson. Because while Biden, Biden being a democratic president, he's exposed to pressure from his left. Boris doesn't have, has, has, doesn't have mm. that, you know, quote unquote problem. And British support for the Saudis over Yemen, over everything else has been just absolutely consistent throughout the last seven years, no matter how many war crimes are committed, the British are there, you know, with the weapons supply. And so I guess Biden probably phones Boris and said, well, they won't listen to me, maybe they'll listen to you. So your mission, treating the British Prime Minister as a kind of an an additional foreign minister for the the US, which is what the British often are in these situations, is what Tony Blair was 20 years ago. He's sent out there to do diplomacy on the West's behalf. And he got similarly short shrift. I mean, he got a visit, but the Saudis didn't agree to pump more oil. And when they carried out that mass execution, as you mentioned, 81 people killed. This is a judicial massacre. They carried that out just before the British Prime Minister landed. They know perfectly well the damage, how difficult that makes things politically for the British Prime Minister. And um, it's a message from the Saudis, you know, refusing the requests and also deliberately embarrassing the British is a message that they're bargaining hard with, um, you know, I don't want people to go away thinking that the Saudis have the power in the relationship or all the power. 
it's a relationship of asymmetric interdependence is how I describe it. Both sides mm. need each other. The Saudis need the West more than the West need the Saudis. But the, the Saudis do have bargaining power, especially in this moment of the tight energy market, and they're using it. So, yeah, that's what's happening at the moment. You mentioned that idea of asymmetric interdependence. Can yeah. you just talk a little bit more? I mean, you've written a whole book about this, so I'm not going to try and get you to, to tell us everything that, that you write in Anglo-Arabia. But can you just talk to us a bit about the UK's relationship with Saudi Arabia, You know, us providing yeah. them with weapons, getting yeah. oil in exchange? What's the history of that relationship and the political economy that underpins it fairly briefly? Yeah, so um, the first thing to mention, and you covered some of this at the beginning, the strategic value of oil, it's like no other commodity. It's not like wheat or copper or tin or whatever else, and w- which are important things. Oil is the lifeblood of the industrialised world economy mm. and in terms of energy, in terms of transport, in terms of all those secondary things you mentioned like fertiliser, petro- all sorts of petrochemicals, synthetic fibres, plastics. It's, it's really, the, yeah, it's the lifeblood of the world economy. And... It's about, for the West, it's about a few things, the, the value of oil, because in, in, in the Middle East, you've got virtually half of the world's proven oil reserves, and the Saudis have a big chunk of them, as do the UAE, Kuwait. And so those Gulf Arab monarchies, they're really strategically significant. So there's, there's a few different reasons why they're, they're, they're significant to the West. It's not just in terms of the strategic value of the supply of the oil, there's that, like you would rather that it was you or your client regimes sitting on top of that oil than your rivals. You would rather it was you and your client regimes than China and its client regimes or Russia or the Soviet Union and its client regimes. So it's a source of kind of structural power in the world system for any imperial power over its rivals. And so, you know, the US has had a huge military presence in the Gulf for many years props up these client regimes. The British would have imperial power in the Gulf for 150 years. And for most of that period, it was about maintaining control over oil. So in terms of inter-imperial rivalry, it's really important. Um, There's also the sort of more basic economic aspect of just making sure this oil flows out to the global economy in a sort of, you know, in a a smooth and regular kind of way. And the other big thing, this is the thing I talk a lot about in, in my book, is the, the the revenue that's generated by the sale of oil is a source of enormous wealth in the world economy. So the kind of the sovereign wealth that these oil producers have as a result of selling all this oil, it, it's it's a similar amount of wealth to what global hedge funds control. Mm. Um, it's really huge, trillions of trillions of dollars in sovereign wealth, and that can be used in a number of different ways: investment in the British financial system, investment in the American financial system. And, and purchasing arms as well. And by purchasing British arms, it's lucrative for the British arms industry, but it also helps Britain to maintain its status as a global military power. To, to be a global military power, you have to have your own arms industry. And frankly, if you look internationally, very few countries are buying British arms other than the Gulf states and, to a lesser extent, the United States as well. So it's, it's, it's important for a variety of reasons, strategic, economic, military... Um, yeah, and that's what binds the two. So that, that's why those states are important to the British and the Americans. The British and the Americans are important to those states as well because they provide protection. You know, these these are precarious regimes with not much d- domestic legitimacy, 
British and American powers helped to keep them in power, you know, equip them to fight off their rivals, domestic and and international. So there's a kind of, as I say, asymmetric interdependence. They, the two sides need each other. Britain and America need them for power. They need us for survival. So where do these states stand when it comes to Russia and to the conflict in Ukraine? Because we've seen quite a few states now almost reactivate this like non-aligned stance with regards to this conflict. Where do the Gulf states stand? Are they kind of unequivocally backing the West or is is it more complicated than that? So this is where this bargaining thing comes in. I've, I've mentioned before how the Saudis are a bit pissed off of the US because the US aren't giving them absolute, total support in ev- absolutely everything. So they're, they're throwing a bit of a tantrum. And what they've been trying to do is hedge their bets internationally. They cooperate with Russia over global energy production. So OPEC, which is the cartel of global energy producers, now collaborates with Russia to set oil prices. They're developing relationship with Russia and China. And it's kind of a hedging your bets. You know, their main geopolitical relationship is with the West, with the British and the Americans. But they're kind of flirting with Russia, flirting with China. And a lot of that is trying to say to the Americans and say to the British, you know, don't go too hard on us or we'll jump into the opposite camp. But this doesn't have any credibility. The Russians don't have the capacity to act as the Saudis and the UAE's protector. The Chinese certainly don't. So what they've been doing in regards to the Ukraine crisis, Americans and the British demanding that they, or asking that they increase oil production, and them saying, no, we're not going to do it. Them refusing to side with the British and the Americans on the UN Security Council over trying to, you know, produce a sort of multilateral condemnation of, of, of Russia's aggression against Ukraine. They're not playing ball with all of that. And it's a bargaining thing. You know, it's uh, if you want our cooperation, you start have to start giving us what we want, which means upgrading your support for us in Yemen over and above what you're already doing, agreeing to, you know, recognise the Crown Prince and, and talk to him more and give him legitimacy after after Khashoggi. That, that's what's going on here. Now, they may be miscalculating. They may well be overplaying their hands. It may turn out that, you know, the British and the Americans don't forget this kind of behaviour and that there'll be a cost to be paid by the Saudis and the UAE. But at this moment, that's how they're behaving. It's a bargaining thing. Mm. There's so much to unpack there. First, I just want to talk briefly about what is actually going on in Yemen, um, because yeah. this is this was until Ukraine, you know, the world's most severe humanitarian crisis, and we had been hearing extraordinary little about it in the news, yeah. Yeah. and even now, you know, there hasn't been any kind of reflection on the part of most people in the mainstream media thinking, hmm, why have we not been covering these mass deaths which are happening? further away than Ukraine, but not that much geographically further away than Ukraine. So is this just racism or is there also a sense in which there's some some efforts amongst, you know, powerful players within the British media to protect Saudi interests, like in alignment with the British state? This is a question I've been asking myself. I mean, for the last seven years as an expert on Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia, I have been banging my head against a brick wall alongside many others, by the way. Um, organisations like Campaign Against Arms Trade, Amnesty International, trying to raise, you know, the alarm about what the British are, are helping the Saudis to do. 
the Saudis have been bombing civilians indiscriminately in Yemen for seven years with British and American arms. And British and American arms, which, as I said before, can't function without ongoing practical British and American support, logistical support, technical support, replenishment of, our, of, um, of ammunition. So the British and Americans have been enabling this war. And it's not just a bombing, it's a blockade as well, a blockade on a what was already a completely impoverished country and an import-dependent country, and a blockade which has led to thousands of people dying of starvation or preventable disease. Save the Children estimated that 85,000 infant children had died of starvation or preventable disease as a result of this man-made humanitarian catastrophe in which the largest culprit is our allies acting with our help. So... And I'm not trying to diminish in any way how terrible the situation is in Ukraine or how, you know, but this is as bad, if not worse. Well, I mean, it is worse because it's been, if only because it's been going on for much longer. Now, why hasn't it been discussed? I think, yeah, sure, one of the reasons is probably racism, you know. We heard many times in the media from the mouths of journalists, them saying we can't believe this is happening in a, in a civilised country in, in, in the West, etc., etc., as if the South is the natural domain of violence and, and, and Europe and the West isn't, forgetting, of course, the fact that a lot of the violence that goes on in the South is an extension of Western violence, if not West, directly Western violence. But I think also, this is the other element, I think, Grace, and I think it's really important to think about this, that... The, the ordinary person in Britain who sees these pictures of what's happening in Ukraine and who's moved by them and expresses solidarity and tries to give aid, that I've, I've no criticism of that. On the contrary, I think it's laudable and something that's really encouraging and to, to be encouraged and to be nurtured and to be marshaled, you know, and, and, and extended. But in terms of the response from the political class and, the, and, and from, the, from the media, let's talk about the media, a humanitarian crisis only becomes really an issue in the British media to the extent that it can be fitted in, it seems to me, with Britain's interests and Britain's antagonisms and conflicts on the world stage, particularly when we can say one of the baddies is doing this and we, the goodies, are going to do something about mm. it. You know, So with Syria, we can say that. With Russia and Ukraine, we can say that. With Yemen, it's a bit harder you know, because actually, you know, there, I mean, there are no good guys in that conflict, but one of the worst killers on the battlefield is our allies with acting with our help. And mm. that's a hard one to fit into the standard discourse about Western power, you know. So you're not going to get the same liberal commentators who are talking now about this great historic clash between democracies and authoritarian states and this great epochal sort of generational fight for the rule of law and for the rules-based international order. They can't fit the Yemen conflict into that sort of facile chauvinistic jingoistic view of the world and do you think that is about you know i guess what i'm kind of wondering is is this a kind of overt attempt by senior people within the media to avoid talking about an issue that is going to embarrass the government or is it literally just that there are journalists who are looking at this and they don't know how to frame it in a way that they think their audience will be interested interested in. I think, yeah. I think yeah. it's more the latter. I think it's more the latter. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's always really hard to pin down concretely how mm. ideology functions at the level of people's individual <laughs> yeah. choices because we're not, we're, not, we're not psychologists. So you're always second-guessing this sort of thing. But the thing is, like, these columnists who don't write about this issue and these politicians, MPs, who don't talk about this issue, and yet 
suddenly when a humanitarian issue arises in another part of the world, they start wailing and rending their garments as if they're principal people. And then if you point out that they haven't been talking about all these other conflicts, they say, oh, that's just whataboutism. It's like, no, it's the like consistent application of a few pretty obvious moral principles like don't murder people. What about is let's think about how that works when in in practice, like when it actually happens, when sort of, for example, when the Israeli government or its supporters say, why are you talking about us when you should be talking about something else? They want you to shut up about both. Mm, Yeah, they don't care if you don't talk about the other thing as long as you don't talk about them. You know, that's what it is. Whereas I think with us on the left, what we've said pretty consistently throughout the last month is it's great that you're talking about Ukraine like this. This is, ex- this is a model of how we should be talking about it, mm. Con- condemning aggression, having empathy for the people who are the victims of aggression, thinking about what we can do to help. Now, why can't we do that with Palestinians? Why can't we do that with Yemenis? And I think the answer seems to me to be pretty clear because they're brown <laughs> right this is like the yeah. the thing that, it, that these journalists are going to have to confront at some point yeah i think that's and, a good part of it and because and yeah. because they're brown and also because it's the two things together yeah one they're people of color and yeah. just an established fact in western political discourse that the lives of people of color don't matter and number two they're the wrong. It's the wrong kind of death, you know. If it's if it's death at the hands of our enemies, the official enemies of Western power, then they suddenly matter. If it's in an instrumentalized way, like people in Syria, when when it's our victims, or at least the victims of our allies, yeah, then 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 it doesn't matter. Um, so th- those two things, I think, go quite closely together. Yeah. We're like, I could literally, we could talk about this for way longer. Um, And like, you know, you have been doing so much work on bringing Yemen to, you know, people's attention in the inverted commas West. Um, But I also want to spend a little bit of time talking about what this conflict and what um, the kind of trend that you've been describing, which is this slightly more assertive stance on the part of many of these Gulf states. What does this say about the kind of, you know, liberal rules-based world order, again, in inverted commas. Because, you know, over the last few years, we have started to see new international political, financial, economic networks emerge that have really come through during this crisis. So between, yes, China and Russia on the one hand, but also, you know, look at the stance India has been taking, which is on the one hand, you know, we're going, you know, trying to um, revive this like non-aligned movement idea, Hmm. but also thinking about how India might be able to actually benefit from this crisis, doing things like Indian banks and talks with with Russian banks about how to facilitate international trade there. Are we moving towards a more multipolar world? And is this crisis, do you think, going to be one of those moments that we start to see a really substantial shift? Yeah, definitely, definitely. It is shifting in that way. And it's it's accelerating underlying trends. I think, like for, you know, for, for for people of my generation who, who came into you know anti-war, anti-imperialist uh, politics twenty years ago in the wake of nine eleven and the war on terror and invasion of Iraq and all that, we're entering into a world that's unfamiliar to us. But you know, it, but historically, is quite normal where you don't just have one completely dominant imperial power. You have one leading imperial power, but a bunch of rival imperials or metropoles as well. This is what, in, in, the, in the capitalist era, 
when imperialism, cap, proper capitalist imperialism, first became a, a thing in the 19th century, as distinct from more general colonialism. I mean, that was the other industrial powers catching up with Britain, and then all of these different industrial powers, France, Germany, US, trying to carve out their own economic, geopolitical spheres of influence in the world. And, you know, after the fast forward quite a lot, after the Cold War, you've got a US-dominated globalized capitalism and being anti-imperialist just meant being anti the us especially when you live in the metropole and you're bound to you know you've got to prioritize the actions of your own government but we're going into a world now where the us is still dominant by far you look at any of the numbers it's still dominant by a huge distance but you have major powers who are more likely to confront the us and who are carving out spheres of their own with russia it's difficult to characterize because russia is a lot weaker than it looks its gdp is actually really small its gdp per capita is minuscule it's got a lot of military power but not a lot else but china is a major growing imperial power this whole belt and road thing this Mm. is this is very much like the classic in capitalist imperialism of old where where the economic relations spread out internationally first of all and i think with china likely they'll be followed by military commitments to protect those interests and so in 21st century capitalism expanded under this u.s umbrella and became connected at a, at a very much at a global level with very few areas shut out of that but I think now we're seeing, because the state and state power continues to be so important in this system, contrary to what some Marxists were arguing 20 years ago, we're now going to have, and we're seeing this with the sanctions, what happens with the sanctions is that bits of the global economy start decoupling from each other and then start realigning. And what you'll end up potentially having is rival economic blocks, you know, mm. with imperial powers acting as the sort of, you know, gravitational centre of each. So you might have a, a Chinese-Russian block on the one hand, a, 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 a US-European block on the other. And then global South states thinking, ah, right, okay, so I'm, I no longer have to be completely dependent or completely, you know, in hock to one imperial power. I can now start trying to play them off against each other to... to Ultimately, I'm going to have to pick a side a lot of the time, but there's going to be I've got I've got more room for for, for bargaining, and that's I guess what we're seeing in the Gulf. But yeah, it's it's one I can't remember the exact quote, but it's, it's something to do with the fact you know sometimes you get decades of history happening in the space of yeah. a few days or weeks. It's it's that, isn't it? I feel that's like, Lenin, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's like so much interesting that that's going on there, and not just when we're looking at geopolitics in terms of overt alliances and, and politics, but also in the underlying finance and economics of this. Mm. Um, because there's been a load of speculation recently about the erosion of the kind of dominance of the dollar, yeah. partly to do with sanctions that have been imposed. So there's this argument that countries are less likely to hold dollar-denominated assets outside of their kind of safe, their geopolitical safe zone because of what's Mm -hmm. happened with the kind of weaponization of the central bank with Russia's foreign assets held in central banks in the West being frozen and seized. There is this argument that that's going to make a lot of states, particularly those that don't have good relations with the West, rethink the, the assets and the currencies that they use. But there's another part to this as well, which is the you know, a big part of, of dollar hegemony is the global trade in, in fossil fuels because yeah. um, that's all denominated in dollars. 
surely there is going to be some impetus here around this crisis to think we need to move away from like, you know, a lot of states, particularly in the global north, need to think about moving away from oil and some push towards clean energy. Now, that's going to have to happen, whether it happens over the next decade or the next several decades. And that's obviously going to have an impact on the dominance of the dollar, but also on those kind of political economic relationships that you discuss in your book as well, and the kind of recycling yeah. of those petrodollars. Definitely, definitely. I mean, look, if, if the relationship between Britain and the United States on the one hand and, and the Saudis and the UAE and Kuwait and all that on the other is, is fundamentally about oil, strategic value of oil, economic value of oil, economic significance of oil revenue, then what happens when the oil stops being pumped? You know, what happens when the petrodollar wealth dries up? You know, what further use do those, do, do, do the imperial powers have for those states? And that is a question that's no doubt worrying deeply. For, for those regimes who have, who have, who have been able to survive as monarchical regimes long into the 21st century, long past mm. when other monarchies have fallen, when democracies spread around the world, because they've been propped up by imperial powers, you know. So they've got a big problem there and a big worry. And yeah, how that breaks down in the future is, is going to be really interesting. In terms of oil being traded in dollars, I mean, that's an arrangement that the Saudis came to with the Americans as part of the general deal. You keep us in power and we'll side with you economically, geopolitically, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, if the Saudis were to move away, that, that's how you'd know, I think, that the Saudis were making a big geopolitical move. And I, it's one I'd be, I'd be shocked if they did it. If they did it, they, they would be being very stupid. But it would be a crossing of the Rubicon. If they were to say now, actually, our oil is going to be traded in a, in a basket of currencies, that would be a big slap to the Americans. And the fact that they haven't done it suggests that, as I say, this is all kind of for show what they've been doing the last few weeks. Mm. But yeah, all, all this stuff is in flux. All, all this stuff is in flux as a result of what's been happening. And it just creates so much uncertainty in yeah. terms of like the the future of the, the like, well, not just the world economy, but like the world, world politics in general. Mm. It does, as you say, like if we do move towards a kind of more multipolar order, there are lots of risks and particularly risks around the kind of reemergence of a new Cold War. And, you know, the Cold War was never obviously really cold. There was fighting that was taking place everywhere. There's fighting that's taking place now. But it also and you wrote an article in Navarra, I think it was last year, talking about how when you get these kinds of us versus them conflicts, they tend to strengthen authoritarian leaders and like quasi-fascist movements yeah, in the global yeah. north yeah so that's a threat yeah you know as well as things like changes to global trade decline living standards all these different sorts of things yeah. but there are also potentially opportunities for states in the global south hmm. to move beyond the washington consensus and actually think about well how can we play as you say play these states off against each other yeah. and try to strengthen our position what do you think on balance this is like you know an incredibly difficult question basically an impossible question to answer <laughs> but like on balance what do you think is the total effect of this shift going to be is it going to create opportunities for progressive change or is it going to end up being really regressive and you know just strengthening authoritarianism and fascism oh, I've, <laughs> I've got a stock answer to these questions yeah. what do you, the, my stock answer to the question what do you think will happen is always well it's up to us oh, yeah um, I, I like that answer because that's what I'd say as well if someone asked me <laughs> well it, it, I mean it is and we can talk about the, the, the sort of general possibilities I think for the south there's dangers and opportunities 
You know, you are strengthened in, in a global environment where there's such huge disparities of power between South states and North states. You are strengthened by being in a multipolar world because you can play one side off against the other. But there is always a danger with that. You know, I mean, in the South, the po- those post-colonial elites weren't nice. Loads of mm. them were not good. You know, Fanon had loads to say about that. And, you know, the ones that sided with the, the West and the ones that sided with the East could often be equally cruel and they could recruit global North power, could recruit superpower backing for their own quiet kind of nasty domestic politics. But, but you if- did also have this sense that, like, at least the global North had to, in some cases, be less awful and less purely harsh free market Washington consensus because yeah. there was this counterpower. Do you think yeah. that that's kind of going to reemerge? Yeah, perhaps. I mean, I think, you know, the, the, the Washington consensus as as, as long... It's already dead, isn't it, really, in a lot of ways? Yeah, it's lost its legitimacy. I mean, even yeah. the, the IMF put out a paper, didn't they, 10 years ago, saying, mm. oh, we might have fucked up here. <laughs> this, yeah. this doesn't actually work. We just, looked, we just ran the numbers and, oops, sorry, guys. <laughs> so it's lost its intellectual legitimacy. So, you know, th- th- there might be more space. I mean, what we've, what would be great to see in the South is a democratic, non-aligned politics, you know, not mm. you know, rather than a cynical play one side off against the other, but to recruit superpower support for, for repressive and, and regressive domestic politics. But like, a, a, a democratic, bottom-up, enlightened, non-aligned approach, you know, maybe in Chile, for example, we'll see yeah. that sort of thing emerge. In, in the North, I think it gives us a huge opportunity, to, a huge impetus to, sh- to, to push for green energy, mm. to remove energy from the geopolitical equation and to get energy security, and an additional argument we can make in terms of decarbonisation. There, there is also this massive, massive danger of the politics of all this. I'm, I'm struggling to think of another word other than euphoria for the way certain people in the political discourse in the West have responded to the opportunity of a generational struggle against some official enemy, you know. Now we can stop talking about wokeness. Now we can stop talking about blah, blah, blah. We've got to focus on the battle against evil. We're the goodies, they're the baddies. And this this attempt to, because in Ukraine, you have got an authoritarian regime committing an act of imperialist aggression against a, a democratic country. But the way that's been exploited by Western politicians and commentators to act as though the battle between NATO and, and Russia is a battle between democracies and the rules-based international order versus autocracies is is dangerous because it will, you know, any, any kind of increase in Western chauvinism and self-satisfaction and refusal to look at ourselves critically is going to produce, a, it's a dangerous politics, which is going to produce quite dangerous actions. When, when we look back to the Cold War and look at everything that was done in the name of you know, freedom and democracy, whether it's carpet bombing Vietnam or backing death squads in Latin America. You know, this, this, these grand narratives can be mobilised to excuse a lot of horrible stuff, um, plus McCarthyism at home as well, where anyone who criticises NATO is deemed to be a kind of traitor or, you know, in league with our enemies. So this can turn quite nasty. And what we on the left, I think, have to do is formulate an analysis and an answer to all of that 
which manifest the fundamental values of anti-imperialism, anti-all imperialism, it's not just ours, but theirs too, but puts forward a kind of progressive agenda for a new internationalism. We, we spent four years talking a lot about domestic politics, the British left, in, during the Corbyn moment. I think we can talk a lot more now about international politics as well and trying to come up with a positive forward agenda for what for internationalism, anti-imperialist internationalism. And we can do that in, in concert with you know, comrades in, in Russia and elsewhere. I couldn't agree more. Um, and yeah, I think coming back to how I opened, if liberals think that this kind of clash of civilizations narrative is going to provide some respite from the decline of liberalism and the dominance of liberalism in the context of people literally being unable to heat their homes, I think they have another thing coming. I hope so. Uh, yeah, but thank you so much, David, me for joining me. We've already gone over time, but I could I could have had you on for way longer. Um, so yeah, thank you so much, and we will speak to you again soon. Brilliant, thank you, thank you.